This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Allen Smith, your host and graduate student at the University of Georgia. First off, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we'll pick a newly published book in American Studies. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Allen Smith, your host and graduate student at the University of Georgia. First off, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we'll pick a newly published book in American Studies and spend the better part of an hour speaking with the author. For our third post, I will be talking with Dr. Elijah Gould, Professor of History at the University of New Hampshire. The topic of our discussion will be his new book, Among the Powers of the Earth, The American Revolution and the Making of a New World Empire, out this year, 2012, from Harvard University Press. In this provocative and enjoyable read, Gould recasts the telling of the American Revolution by setting the story in an international and Atlantic context. He argues, quite convincingly I might add, that the American Revolution and the state-building events that followed were drastically shaped and informed by the European powers at the time. In order to participate on the world stage, both commercially and politically, the nascent U.S. state needed to convince the existing powers, which included Great Britain, that they were, in Gold's words, a treaty-worthy sovereign. As you'll hear in the discussion, this was no simple task. The Founding Fathers were acutely aware of the importance of obtaining such legitimacy, and as Gold deftly reveals in the book, their actions reflected as much. Departing from the typical narrative of the 13 colonies also allows Gould to bring in a variety of characters and stories that do not often appear in traditional histories of the Revolution. From French Acadians and their forcible removal from Nova Scotia, to African slaves in the Caribbean, maroon communities, and absentee sugar planters living in London, all of this offers a more comprehensive view of the American Revolution and its meaning across the entire British Empire. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Gould, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
Today we're discussing your new book, Among the Powers of the Earth, The American Revolution and the Making of a New World Empire, out this year, 2012, from Harvard University Press. And I'd like to start first, as we do every month, by asking what brought you to this project? Why revisit the American Revolution? Well, thanks, Ben. And I think, as most historians would say, there's both a personal and a professional dimension to this, and, and certainly the personal uh, probably is what uh, drew me to it, and at least at first kept me going. Uh, and that is that uh, my own background, family background, is uh, Nova Scotia. My family's originally Canadian, uh, then Michigan. I was born in Detroit. My mother's family's from Western Kentucky. And as someone who's long been interested in the revolution, I, I'd also long been interested in what does the revolution mean in these places that weren't, in fact, part of the United States in 1776. Okay. Uh, of course, Nova Scotia never became part of the United States, even though John Adams would have liked to make it one. So, uh, you know, it, it, we, we, we tell the revolution story, and we certainly read about it from the standpoint of the 13 British colonies that became the United States. But, but of course, the, the Union expanded very quickly, and by 1783, it included uh, what became Michigan and Kentucky, uh, and Nova Scotia continues to be profoundly affected by it. So I think the first thing I wanted to do was to write a history that would bring those outlying parts into the story. And I ended up bringing in Florida, and in fact, the book even looks toward Texas and California, uh, which we never think of as being part of, uh, of the United States neighborhood. Right. In some ways, they are. So that was part of it. It's a you know, and that's a personal thing. Uh, but of course, uh, as uh, the professional historians among your listeners will know, uh, there's been a huge move over the last 20 years away from kind of the, the, the 13th state core of American history uh, toward what we now think of as the U.S. And the world. And uh, I was also very interested from a kind of intellectual academic standpoint. Uh, in answering the question, what happens when we situate the United States in the world as Americans understood it and experienced it in 1776? And then in the, the next 50 years, and the book takes the story up to the Monroe Doctrine and down the log on what I call the Monroe. So uh, there are two parts to it, the personal, uh, but then there is this intellectual question. Interesting. And I'd say you make a very good point in the um, introduction that many people tend to see the revolution as a moment when American people began making their own history. Uh, and I just want to ask, like, what is wrong with this assumption? <laughs> well, um, I mean, yeah, one of the, one of the founding notions uh, in uh, American history, and it's certainly something I think that most uh, Americans today buy into, uh, is that um, the, the revolution marked the beginning of a, of a new nation, and, and not just any new nation, but a nation that was founded on the principle of popular sovereignty. This would be a nation where the people would decide their own political and ultimately historical fate. Uh, and so it's really woven into the, um, the grain of our, uh, uh, our history as a democratic people. And I think that's fine, and it's important, and I certainly wouldn't want to take issue with that. However... Uh, oftentimes left out of that is the fact that nations also, they require the recognition of other nations to be nations. Uh, it's very difficult to do uh, uh, much unilaterally in, in the last sort of 10 years. I think we've been reminded of that uh, in, in the history of the United States today, sure. uh, that even great powerful nations uh, ultimately require cooperation and consent from other nations 
And so this seemed to me like a point worth making because, in fact, the founders that were very keenly aware of the need to court international recognition, particularly recognition in Europe, if they were going to achieve the democratic ends that they had in mind. And uh, which is to say that even as they were trying to create a nation where the people would be sovereign or supreme, they also recognized it had to be a nation that other nations would, would accept, which means that the people couldn't, in fact, do exactly what they wanted. Uh, there were going to be constraints on that built into this need for recognition. You describe this quest for legitimacy among the other nations. Uh, you, you term it treaty worthiness. Could you explain a little bit about like, what that means? Well, um, in 1776, when uh, the, uh, Congress issued the Declaration of Independence, um, they were the Congress and, and Americans in general, certainly those who supported the Declaration, were breaking with Britain. They were severing ties that historically had bound them to uh, the, the British government, to George III and, and to uh, Parliament and, and to the British nation. So in that sense, they were severing ties. But they were also, on a very profound lever, level, joining. They were, in fact, joining uh, uh, the international community of nations. And very clear in the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, right. where uh, Jefferson says, you know, we aspire to this place among, he accepted as one of the powers of the earth, to be among the powers of the earth, of course, the book. Well, the way that... The, in practice, what that meant was they wanted to be able to negotiate treaties. Uh, uh, you, if, if you related, if they had related to Britain as uh, through sort of the, the vehicle, the devices were sort of the devices of citizenship and subjecthood, paying taxes or not, uh, um, uh, rec accepting British law. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which they had acknowledged the, uh, their place within the British Empire. Their place within this new world was going to be mediated by the right to negotiate treaties, and so they, so, so they're, they're, and in order to do that, they have to be recognized as treaty. Right. And um, so you also talk a bit about the law of nations in the beginning of the book, and sort of theme actually throughout the book, specifically how it starts to break down or, or it's manipulated on the imperial periphery. You know, a few yeah. things come to mind, specifically slavery in the Americas. Um, do you want to talk a bit about how you incorporate slavery in, into the book? Sure. And, in fact, that, that builds on this question of treaty worthiness because uh, um, the, the question of treaty worthiness matters uh, to Americans because oftentimes uh, they, they lived in a neighborhood where many of their neighbors were not people whom they themselves regarded as treaty worthy. Uh, um, they they – in their relations with Native Americans, they did, in fact, negotiate uh, things, agreements that they called treaties. And in some senses, they were treaties, but they didn't have the standing of the great Europeans. Uh, uh, likewise, uh, uh, African Americans uh, um, and, uh, and, and also Africans brought over to the Americas slave trade uh, oftentimes had come from societies that were um, – Capable of entering into agreements, but they didn't have the um, they they weren't treaty worthy in the sense that European nations understood that. And, and here's where the law of the, and for that the law of nations was crucial. It, it's a body of, of what we would call today international law that uh, prescribed set certain conditions that nations needed to 
conform to or realize in order to be accepted as treaty-worthy entities, that is, uh, entities that could claim the rights of the law of nations, uh, and that uh, could claim rights both vis-a-vis -vis each other, but also vis-a-vis -vis groups who uh, uh, didn't, did not enjoy those rights. And one of the uh, uh, one of the reasons why Americans sought this recognition within the law of nations within Europe was so that they could, in fact, continue playing the role of an, an imperial power within their own neighborhood. Um, uh, and this includes both uh, perpetuating the institution of slavery uh, within their own borders and also uh, um, negotiating uh, agreements with Indians that would allow them to uh, uh, take Indian land and, um, uh, and, and push, push Indians off it. So that there's kind of a double-edged sword to this, uh, this concept of treaty worthy as Americans. Right. And um, also as an interesting side note, when you discuss slavery, uh, you talk about how the different labor regimes geographically where slavery existed can help elucidate why the colonial islands didn't separate from England like the mainland colonies. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Sure. Uh, you, you, why the Caribbean? Why, why the right, like Jamaica. Right, exactly. Um, well, I mean, uh, there, are, uh, there are a couple of explanations for why the West Indians didn't uh, rebel. I, I mean, the first point to be made is that there actually was quite a bit of sympathy for right. the American cause uh, among white West Indians. And in fact, some of Britain's West Indian colonies uh, particularly during the opening uh, the, uh, uh, chapter of the American Revolt, the Stamp Act Crisis of 1765, um, actually also had protests against the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act was uh, the tax that that imposed by Parliament uh, was also unpopular in the West Indies. Um, right. Ultimately, uh, even the largest West Indian islands, uh, Jamaica being the largest uh, uh, geographically, um, did not rebel. Uh, certainly one of the reasons has to do with the fact that the West Indian Islands uh, had large uh, of, of, um, slave majorities, and the West Indians worried, with good reason, that if they uh, rebelled against the British government, that in fact their slaves might well rebel against them. And, uh, right, right. and African Americans uh, certainly heard the language of liberty, and uh, this had real resonance for them. Uh, so that, uh, that, that's part of the reason. The other, another reason is that, uh, and this is a theme that I talk a lot about in the book, is that as island colonies, the West Indians were, uh, the West Indian, uh, colonies were, uh, situated in a British lake, uh, that they were right. vulnerable to. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, so, and, and it would have been very difficult for them to rebel, whereas, uh, as, uh, continental colonies, uh, the, uh, the North American colonies between the United States uh, um, could, could, you know, not that separating from Britain was easy, but, but they, uh, uh, the, the Royal Navy was not the, the same threat to the, to the continental colonies. That it was. So it was still a threat. And uh, certainly part of this quest for treaty worthiness uh, is, is mattered to Americans because one of the things they sought was for recognition of their maritime rights. And even right. as uh, the United States uh, was successful in achieving its independence from Britain. Uh, the question of whether the rights of its uh, um, ships and sailors would be respected on the seas continued to be a very, very next broad issue uh, throughout the first 50 years. Interesting.
interesting. And actually, that brings me to a, a point that I had uh, some difficulty understanding. I'm hoping you can clear it up because you did discuss at length what Blackstone termed the maritime state you know, as being the most formidable in the world in the mid-18th century, which, of course, it was. And you discussed how British captains were cognizant of the law of nations and its influence on the high seas, um, you know, their relationships with other uh, powerful nations. But it seemed to me that you were making the point that British naval superiority was so vast that they seemed to be able to set maritime law, like the maritime law of nations, on their own terms. And go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think um, you can tell me if this clears up your question or if this, in fact, is your question. But uh, I think part of what you're getting at is that the law of nations was not a fixed thing. Right. In fact, uh, it, 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 huge amount of disagreement about exactly what rights under the law of nations uh, consisted of. Uh, a lot of the people who wrote on it came from small states, uh, and a particularly important thinker at the time of the Revolution is a French Protestant Swiss writer named uh, Emer de Patel, uh, who actually spent most of his life working for the King of Prussia. But uh, his uh, digest of uh, on the Law of Nations, widely uh, uh, reprinted, first printed in French uh, in the 1750s, but almost immediately translated into English. Uh, it was the version of the Law of Nations that the members of the Continental Congress were uh, familiar with and read. And uh, Vattel really presents a, an image of a version of the Law of Nations uh, that was very conducive to small, weak, and vulnerable states. And of course, that includes United States. And as part of this, uh, Vitell, and if you read it, uh, is very friendly to the rights of small maritime powers who maybe don't have big navies uh, to trade with whoever they please. Uh, and uh, doing so not just in times of peace, but in times of war. Well, large maritime powers, and this certainly included France and Spain, but above all, it included Britain, the greatest maritime power of the age, uh, did not agree with this view of nations. And uh, particularly in time of war, the British claimed that unless a nation had a treaty uh, that allowed it to trade with um, uh, combatants, uh, that uh, uh, powers at war were free to stop the ships of neutral powers from trading with their enemies. Uh, the reason for this is that Britain practiced a kind of total warfare against its enemies, particularly in the West Indies. Uh, it's, uh, they essentially, the Royal Navy would lay siege to the colonies of, of their enemies. So France's colonies in the Caribbean, the most important being Saint-Domingue, what is today Haiti. Uh, um, in times of war, the British uh, would blockade that and, uh, and attempt to starve it into submission. And, so, uh, and the British claimed that they were entitled to do this under the Law of Nations. So the question was, what did the Law of Nations say? And for a weak state, um, uh, like the United States and another uh, nation that felt very similar to the United States were the Dutch, uh, who had once been a great maritime power but were not any longer. Uh, and uh, the Dutch, uh, also the Danes. Interestingly enough, Russia is an important spokesperson, uh, you know, a nation in this player. Uh, of course, they're a great continental power, but they didn't have much of a native presence. So there's a huge issue during the American Revolution, and on this, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, the United, uh, after independence, the United States tends to think like a small power, and the lot right. of the, the the conflict uh, between uh, Britain and the United States 
uh, uh, turns on this question of whether small states have rights that great states are obligated to respect, particularly in times of war. And cycling back to this question about the West Indies, I think the West Indian colonies knew that as independent states, they would be hopelessly vulnerable to not just to the might of the the Royal Navy, uh, but to the full array of the rights that the Royal Navy claimed under, uh, and that Britain claimed on its behalf under the law of nations. Sure, and you you actually talk a bit about how the United States struggled to regain commercial presence in the Atlantic after the Revolution because uh, it seemed like Great Britain was punishing them. Yes, they were. And uh, actually, one of the interesting stories, I mean, uh, the the, uh, kind of asymmetric relationship that I've just described, where you have Britain invoking its version of the law of nations against the law of nations that small maritime powers like the United States and Denmark and uh, the Netherlands and even Russia favored. Uh, You know, Britain held a lot of cards in that. The interesting thing in this story, and it's certainly part of what I tell, it's not the main story, uh, but as, you know, I said at the outset or early in our interview, you know, I, I've been, I was conscious as I was writing this book of uh, the last 10 years of American history where we've seen that a nation as, power, as powerful as the United States, you, oftentimes we, we have had to make concessions to other uh, nations over the last 10 years, even from this, this perch of power that we occupy today. Well, the interesting thing is that in the 50 years after American independence, Britain had to do the same thing. And the United States ends up being a great beneficiary. Uh, so even though repeatedly Britain attempts to stop American ships from trading with the, the colonies of its enemies, uh, right after the revolution, uh, Britain repeatedly tries to prevent American ships from going back to the West Indies to reopen the very lucrative trade that New Englanders in particular conducted with the British West Indies when they were part, under the same government. Uh, you know, in the abstract, Britain doesn't want to allow that, but repeatedly the British themselves have no choice but to allow right. uh, that trade to resume. And during the, um, of course, the American Revolution is only the first of the big uh, revolutionary wars that Britain is engaged in from 1776 into the early 19th century. The even bigger wars are the wars with revolutionary Napoleonic France. And over the course of those wars, Britain continues to make concessions to American shipping so that by 1815, the United States had the second largest merchant marine in the world. Number one, of course, was Britain. But uh, in fact, the United States ended up being a beneficiary of the fact that Britain itself couldn't completely disregard the view of the law of nations that these smaller uh, maritime powers had. And, uh, and, and they actually make concessions to the United States, uh, even beyond what they have to make to other powers. Uh, and so that, uh, there, you, you get it. It really continues to be an asymmetric relationship, but it's one that the United States is very, very, uh, adept in terms of. Right. Yeah, does the, um, the slave trade and abolitionist sentiment in the late 1700s complicate that at all? The relationship with our well, nation? Well, uh, it, Yes, uh, uh, slave trade and, and uh, it, uh, one of the one of the big stories in this book is the rise of the movement to abolish slavery, both domestic slavery as it was practiced in the tobacco fields of Virginia and eventually the cotton fields of the South, uh, and the slave trade itself. And uh, the American Revolution plays a huge role in in launching this. In fact, the 
first, uh, um, if you will, treaty-worthy nations anywhere in this sort of European uh, Atlantic world to, to abolish the slave trade are actually the American states. Uh, and uh, they start doing it in 1776. And by the 1790s, all of the American states individually had outlawed the uh, slave trade, including from uh, South Carolina, even though Congress under the Constitution put it. So that the United States actually claims to be a leader in the movement to abolish slavery. Um, uh, but another big leader in this is Britain. And uh, the American Revolution marks the beginning of the, uh, the domestic push in Britain uh, to abolish slavery in both its uh, manifestations, both the slave trade and the internal slavery practice in uh, uh, Britain's own West Indian colonies, which they endemic and legal. Uh, the, so the interesting thing about this is that it is a very elaborate uh, and uh, one of the great, it's actually a very disturbing irony that I became aware of, uh, and it's actually very troubling, is that all of the great ab these abolitionist triumphs, uh, that is, the, the laws abolishing slavery, variably recognized slavery's legality elsewhere. Uh, they are, in fact, a, a compromise legislation. Uh, okay. You can see this, for example, in the Northwest Ordinance, uh, it, mm -hmm. which is a congressional act in 1787, which uh, is oftentimes noted, uh, banned slavery north of the Ohio River. And so it's the reason why Ohio and later Illinois and, in, and Indiana and Illinois, home of Abraham Lincoln. Right. So uh, such legislation wouldn't pass unless it recognized right. uh, that it was well, okay the, the, in another place. The flip side of this is that it, north of the Ohio River, slaves escaping from territory that is still uh, where slavery is still legal, uh, magistrates in the North Northwest Territory are obligated to return them to the state of slavery. Now, so in fact, the Northwest Ordinance, even as it rec it abolishes slavery in some areas, gives recognition to slavery in other places. And as a result of this, uh, even though Britain, after Britain abolished the slave trade. 1807, uh, and uh, is, was in a position to abolish the slave trade everywhere, uh, continued to recognize the legitimacy of slavery in other uh, and other nations, including the rights of other nations to engage in the slave trade. And the United States manipulates this uh, to um, great advantage, or I should rather I should say that slave traders in the United States uh, manipulate this, and they continue to do it in the 19th century. Sometimes they're manipulating loopholes in federal law, and there are a lot of loopholes like that. All of the abolitionist laws within the United States continue to recognize the legitimacy of the slave trade under certain conditions. And the same thing is the same thing is happening uh, with uh, the way Britain is enforcing this law, these laws. So that, in fact, it, it, it's one of the tra one of the great tragic ironies of the abolition of the slave trade is that. Uh, more slaves cross the Atlantic after the slave trade has been abolished uh, uh, right, than do right. before on an annual basis, and uh, and they do so even though the slave trade is illegal. But these loopholes remain. So that this uh, um, the law of nations it is very you know it's complicated in the way it works. Right. One important thing here, and it, it touches both on uh, you know the way the law of nations operates, uh, and getting back to this question of treaty worthiness. Well, there's a huge distinction in international law today, and it was certainly present in the law of nations at the time of the revolution, between peacetime and wartime conditions. 
And under wartime, uh, the, uh, uh, a combatant state, that is a government at war, can do a great deal in the name of war, including mm-hmm. shot stopping ships of neutral nations. And a lot of the great advance in the abolition of slave trade actually occurred under wartime conditions. The problem is, after the Battle of Waterloo, when Napoleon is finally defeated uh, and peace is restored to all of Europe and therefore to all of the Atlantic space within which the slave, across which the, the, the American slave trade traveled, uh, Britain could no longer unilaterally stop the ships of neutral nations, uh, and uh, and uh, and and so. Um, and particularly if the if the ships are, if the slaves are traveling in a ship flagged under bearing the flag of a treaty worthy nation that is a nation that Britain recognized as a legitimate sovereign mm-hmm. uh, to stop that ship would be an act of war. And uh, right. in 1815, the British are not interested in getting into another war with anybody there. Uh, it's been a costly war. What they want to do is lower their cost of government, uh, lower taxes, and sort of recoup their finances. We can understand that today here in the United States. They feel exactly the same way, uh, and uh, so that one of the pro- one of the groups who pays the penalty of that are in fact the men and women uh, who are targeted in Africa, um, you know, kidnapped, uh, you know, dragged on board slave ships, shipped over to America. So right. that the re- the restoration of peace means that actually the people targeted by the slave trade have fewer rights than they did in times of war. Terrible irony. Right, and isn't this also uh, when the U.S. was able to assert its treaty worthiness in the sense with that they reclaimed the right to police the slave trade in matters regarding American vessels? Yes, yeah, and and a part of what happens after 1815, and of course Britain and the United States did fight another war. Uh, we're commemorating its bicentennial right now, the War of 1812, and uh, that war was over shipping rights. Uh, the Americans objected to uh, the British stopping American ships and impressing native-born Britons who are claimed into the Royal Navy. Um, they also objected to Britain, you know, seizing ships and trading with the enemy. And uh, the, the War of 1812 actually settled nothing on that. Uh, they two mentioned the sword beef in 1814, and the peace treaty made no mention of maritime rights. Uh, but uh, so that, uh, in fact, Americans were itching. Uh, they, they're very sensitive on this subject. And it, when peace is finally restored to all of Europe, uh, they make very clear that they will not allow the Royal Navy to stop American ships engaged in the slave trade, even though the trade is illegal under U.S. law. They say, well, we'll police. But the U.S. Navy, after 1815, I mean, there is a Navy, but it's not much of one. And uh, certainly uh, it can't really stop the slave trade in American flagged vessels uh, um, a, Certainly, it can't do it the way it would if the Royal Navy could. And actually, Britain is able to lean on a lot of new nations. It forces most of the new Latin American republics to agree to allow the, the Royal Navy to stop its slave ships. Eventually, it forces France and Spain and Portugal to do the same thing. So that by you know the late 1820s and 30s, it's the stars and stripes. It's the flag of convenience for uh, uh, slave traders, even though it's illegal under U.S. law. But uh, the, the U.S. Navy doesn't have the ships to stop it, and uh, the United States won't allow the Royal Navy to stop those ships. Why? Because That's quite disturbing indeed. Yeah, they're still angry about the War of 1812. Well, I guess I, I guess we'll change pace here a little bit. I wanted to ask you a quick question about uh, the sources you use. Hmm. Um, you know, what did you find most insightful or helpful? 
Well, one of the things, uh, actually, I mean, a lot of what we've talked about so far can sound kind of dry and abstract, and I want to promise listeners that, in fact, uh, uh, you know, these ideas are in the book, but uh, they're actually full of wonderful stories. Because as every attorney knows, um, uh, the, the practice of the law is sort of uh, uh, adapting principle to very specific situations. So that uh, I found that even admiralty court, case, court cases are full right. of wonderful stories. And I tried to use those stories to sort of illustrate the point, which of course is what uh, the people who wrote them uh, were trying to do to begin with. Uh, but so... Um, there's actually an awful lot. One of my goals in the book was both not only to make it vivid, but to make it vivid from the standpoint of ordinary men and women, right. and uh, wherever possible. Uh, I, I try, you know, I, I, I used uh, the testimonial from uh, uh, very humble people. You know, maybe in some cases illiterate sailors who are simply being their words are being transcribed by a secretary or a magistrate somewhere, right. um, or. Uh, uh, um, uh, one of the most affecting stories uh, in the book uh, the, um, is about the Loyalists, uh, who, of course, after 1783, are really people without a country. Uh, although they had fought on behalf of Britain, they find themselves, uh, they're not protected by the law of nations. Uh, uh, and in fact, the United States famously ignores its obligations in 1783. And, right. uh, one of the stories I tell is about a couple, John and Mary Port Macklin who yes. had moved to South Carolina in the early 1770s. They had a little bit of money, and they had uh, actually bought uh, an old ship and opened up a dockside eatery in Charleston. It had become very fashionable, and they'd done very well. Then the war breaks out, and John uses to take an oath of allegiance to the state of South Carolina. He's loyal to the sovereign, and he's English. And uh, the state of South Carolina dispossesses them. These their uh, property. Uh, John is thrown in jail. Uh, Mary uh, uh, is, um, we're not quite sure what happens to her. She probably uh, uh, puts herself out as an indentured servant. Eventually, they make their way to East Florida, which was a British colony that, at the time that remained under British control. Uh, John privateer um, and does well, but then Britain returns East Florida to Spain at the end of the war. And, and uh, so uh, they're, they're destitute. And, right. um, uh, and and I quote from this, uh, we, we have actually testimonial from both of them. And uh, Mary talks about uh, the last time she saw John. Uh, she's sick. Uh, she's in the Bahamas. John comes to her. He said he hadn't been to her in, you know, in several weeks, but he himself had been sick. He promised he'd come see her the next day, and she says, I've never seen him. But we know that what John did is he went back to England. He tried to recruit his debts. Uh, uh, He's thrown into debtor's prison. He eventually gets about 100 pounds of the several thousand that he was owed, so he gets himself out of debtor's jail. We don't know what happens. He probably dies a pauper. Mary becomes an indentured servant in the Bahamas. And so stories like that, you know, uh, again, treaty worthiness sounds very abstract, so <laughs> but stories like that really show what this meant to ordinary men and women. And one of the right. things I do with the Macklin story is to juxtapose it against a much better-known story, although it's mm -hmm. equally heart-rending at the time, of what Andrew Jackson, future president of the United States, saw. Uh, right. he, has, uh, he has a brother who's being held in a prison brig in uh, Charleston Harbor. That is a British prison thing. And again, the, the British do not treat American 
prisoners of war well at all. Again, the United States is not a treaty-worthy nation. Why should they? Uh, and Jackson loses not only his brothers, but he also loses his mother because she goes and nurses, uh, uh, tries to take care of uh, his brother on that ship, and they're carried off uh, by disease. And Jackson himself is captured. A British officer orders him to clean his boots. Jackson refuses. Strikes him across the face with a sword. And Jackson becomes very proud of that wound. But again, uh, uh, you know, this is what you can do with uh, civilians who are breaking the law of nations and rules of war, as the British saw it. So, uh, again, you know, here are tragedies on both sides. And there's a lot that we think of as being very atrocious. Uh, and atrocities happen to all sorts of people in times of war. But if you're on the wrong side of these abstract categories, uh, your fate can be really horrible. Right, and I, I do think you do a really good job um, capturing the human lived experience as it relates to Thank the law of nations. Thank you. Um, and this other source base I wanted to talk about quickly, I, I noticed that you used a lot of sermons to illuminate public sentiment in reaction to different worldly events, and they're just unbelievable in how eloquent and effusive uh, they are in getting their points across. So I just had to ask, what drew you to that source base? And I guess the other question would be, you know, what are the limits of the sources? Of, of, okay, you know, yeah. Well, one of the limits is you're definitely dealing with a, a, a hyper-articulate group. Uh, they're, they're educated. Uh, you know, um, certainly in the opening chapter, where I talk I do the opening chapter really kind of sets up the problem by talking about three groups who kind of hovered on the margins of right, the law right. of nations, uh, you know, one being Indians, uh, another being pirates, uh, and uh, another being sort of um, European settlers, marginal lands. And uh, the next chapter then looks at the slaves and sort of a fourth group who hover on the margins. And, uh, you know, the sermon literature is very eloquent, particularly on uh, um, Indians and pirates. Uh, uh, and I use a lot of these New England sermons. You know, we're, we're, we're listening to guys, you know, these guys are white males, attended Harvard, Yale, uh, you know, and read their lack. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we mustn't take them as representative, but they're very good. You know, one of the things that's interesting about them is that they, too, are kind of channeling these motifs that we find in the Law of Nations. And, and in fact, the Law of Nations grows out of a kind of uh, uh, something known as natural philosophy that a lot of ministers would have read. And so they, they, it's, it's helpful in reminding us just what a broadly understood kind of language or discourse Right. The law of nations was. So I used it uh, for those reasons. But the other thing is, these are listeners. Now, how much who understands, you know, <laughs> you know, after you've given a lecture, uh, you know, how much of that has actually been understood by your students? You hope 100%. I mean, right. you can't know uh, when Benjamin Coleman <laughs> is uh, lecturing, giving a lecture at the time of the execution of the pirate, uh, how much is, of that is being understood. Um, but I think it's an important part of the story. Um, and I will say another part of the story is also the, the studied disregard uh, and, in fact, open mocking uh, with which many convicted pirates greeted that kind of thing. I talk about that as well. And I think you know, it's important to realize that uh, the Law of Nations was itself a text, and people oftentimes tried to subvert it. Uh, they tried to claim the benefits themselves, but other times they would, you know, pirates in particular would uh, – it's the equivalent of giving them a finger. They've even done that. <laughs> well, I just say, I think as far as the sermons go, I was just shocked to see that that international legal discourse actually made it into sermons yeah. in, in some of the locations that you're talking about. It just seems like 
some of these places that are on the American frontier at the time are, are they're sitting in these churches and they're listening to these preachers talk about things that are not local. You know, they're very worldly. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, it's it's funny. One of the things that um, funny, but uh, you know, <laughs> one of the another goal that I had in this book. And now, this is a very academic thing, but uh, it's well known that uh, one of the benchmarks, one of the things that Americans claimed for themselves as they moved into, quote, unoccupied land, of course, it's occupied land. They claimed the right to do this when they were civil. You know, and the same language also justifies enslavement. And uh, that's all well and good, and I think that's an important part of it. But the thing I liked about this international law is that when they're claiming to be civilized, oftentimes what they're really claiming is the right to certain very tangible um, uh, sets of behaviors and forms, uh, you know, and rights and privileges under this body of law, and the right to deny that to others. And partly because they're conversant in that, you know, they, they are, mm. in fact, you know, they, they are attuned uh, to what's going on in Europe or, or eventually Latin America. And, and the, the final uh, chapter of the book, which deals with the 1820s, uh, uh, the Latin American is a big part of this. And okay. um, uh, they, 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 they know what's going on elsewhere, and, and it's a narrative that matters. Uh, and it matters because uh, if you're claiming to be civilized, if you're claiming to be treaty worthy, you're you're by uh, you you you're claiming we are comparable to someone else, and so you also tell their story because you're uh, um, and uh, they're they're good guys and bad guys in this, and you're lining up with this, not with that. And uh, so um, it's not that these it's not that these ministers on the frontier are any better educated than we are today, but it's just that the story that they're telling this is. Okay, so I guess um, in closing, I only have a few more questions. Uh, I mean, the book is written in such fluid prose, and as we've just been talking about, the, the stories in them are, are just wonderful. I and mean, it should appeal to a general audience and not just students. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I guess the question I have for you, and this is typically one of the harder questions that I ask, is uh, why should non-specialists, a.k.a. the common history buff or the avid reader, pick up your book? Well, I would say, you know, part of it is it actually is a good read. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it opens up with these vignettes, and and it actually it's it's, it's a narrative book. Uh, and I'm quite conscious. I was quite conscious that I was writing that there are certain people who continue to show up. And uh, one of the things I tried to do was to show people we think we know about in uh, contexts that are surprising and say, oh, I didn't know that about Andrew Jackson. I mean, how many people know that Andrew Jackson took an oath of allegiance? That shocked me. Exactly. <laughs> I thought I was pretty well versed in uh, and Jacksonian so, history. Uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> the general reader will discover things that she or he uh, know. Uh, but I think the other thing is that um, uh, it, there can be a tendency in general books to sort of just tell us. Right. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, this is a book that takes a general reader very seriously. I think some of these higher order questions are things that uh, we as today need to think about and need to know about. Um, certainly, getting back to why I wrote this, I was very conscious. I started it, really, I started the first chapter uh, about September 11th uh, of um, 2001, the, the post-9-11 book. And I think some of these things that it grapples with, questions of international legality, what it means to be an asymmetric 
power, either with or without it in that relationship, what it means to have international obligations, what some of the downsides of that uh, can be. Those are things that are with us. They're not going to go away. And they're things that I think that as American citizens, we need to make ourselves the person. Well said. And then I guess my final question is a two-part question. One, despite how new your book is, uh, have you assigned it to students? Uh, I'm actually planning to assign it in the uh, spring semester, uh, with the one coming up, uh, for a graduate course. Uh, it's a research seminar, and uh, uh, we, there's, the common reading is about um, where we take examples of different kinds of history, talk about how historians wrote those books, the kind of sources they used, uh, the kind of problems they wrestled with. Uh, and um, I plan to use this both to talk about sort of legal history, uh, you know, the themes of political history. Uh, it's also a book profoundly shaped by the digital revolution uh, in ways that I couldn't have anticipated when talked about that here. Uh, but I also plan to uh, discuss that as well uh, and uh, the kinds of sources we have access to. I couldn't have written without <laughs> And so from a pedagogical perspective, what is the most important thing you'd want your students to walk away from the book knowing? Uh, maybe not the graduate students, but if you, like you were going to assign a student under undergraduate course or maybe draw your lectures from some of the material in your book, like what do you think is the main takeaway? Uh, I think the main takeaway is the extent to which the revolution was an attempt not just to leave the British Empire, but an attempt to join the world. And that, that that attempt to join the world exerted a profound influence on the early American Republic and on its citizens uh, that was every bit as important and, and oftentimes more so uh, than uh, their own efforts to create this information. And that we really, we need to understand that, that wider context if we're going to understand what the all right. Well, that about rounds out our time. Um, Dr. Gould, thank you very much for coming on New Books in American Studies. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, Ben, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. All right. And for the listeners, once again, the title of the book is Among the Powers of the Earth, the American Revolution, and the Making of a New World Empire, out in 2012 from Harvard University Press. It would make a wonderful holiday gift, as we've just been discussing, and um, <laughs> not just for students of history, but also the history buff in your family. So I'd say put it on your shopping list. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.